This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show, and salut, Babette. Tonight's show is about drawdown. Solutions for the excess carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. So last year, listeners, you'll remember we interviewed the author of Drawdown, Paul Hawken. And tonight we'll look at the two big ways to cut gigatons out of the atmosphere, plus the economic shifts that will accelerate Drawdown. The team tonight is Andy and Kurt. And before we have a chat, I'd like to quote an image I saw on a wall by that graffiti artist called... Banksy. It said, from this moment, despair ends and tactics begin. So tonight we're talking tactics. And the picture with that was a little child holding an hourglass, the symbol of Extinction Rebellion. And you know how they're great, making great waves. They're just stopping the traffic and making people sit up and do what we've been doing for years, trying to make you cope with climate change. If you want to dramatise the need to tell the truth about climate, in our coming election, you can go down to Monash University tonight in Clayton. They are dramatising this um, outside the Robert Blackwood Hall where Q&A will be filmed tonight. And the address is 49 Scenic Drive, Clayton. I'll mention it again at the end of the programme. Our guests tonight will be Sue Holmes on the economy, Lachlan Rule on refrigerants and Joshua Bishop on food waste. So hi, Kurt, and hi, Andy. How you going, Viv? Hey. Good, thank you. Listen, Kurt, what impressed you about Drawdown? Uh, look, I thought it was a really hopeful book. Um, just how powerful the tense is. You know, we, it, it talks about these solutions but says that they, they will be enforced by 2050. Uh, I think what's kind of come to the fore at the moment with the climate movement is we, we oscillate between hope and despair, hope and despair. It's really great to read something that is hopeful, but the hope is implicit because it's so practical. Yeah, that's right. And they have sort of like a, a scorecard of the things that mm. are the most um, impressive things to draw down first, the low-hanging fruit. And one of them we're going to talk tonight is refrigeration. And that sort of put me in my box a bit because I harp on to all my friends. I hope they're listening tonight because I want them to, you know, me to forgive me because I make them feel so guilty when I go, oh, I just catch the train to Melbourne. I don't fly anymore. And they, they make me feel like a blue stocking. But on the league table, actually, aviation isn't the main urgent one to cut down its refrigeration and get more wind turbines and so on. So it's that that order of priority is something that we could all learn. Yeah. Yeah, and there were there there were a lot of surprises in that in the top 100. Uh having refrigeration at the top was one. Uh another one that we'll deal with today is food waste. So that is number 4. Mm. That was kind of a big shock. And um you know, within these solutions there's 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 some surprises as well. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, what were you surprised by? Um, I was surprised uh, in re- the refrigerant management, which we'll talk about later, but just that there was this Kil- Kilgali uh, Rwanda, uh, which was a modification of oh, yeah. this uh, Montreal protocol, which is about phasing out uh, HCFCs. But that they within that protocol, they had the power to 
for one country, if they didn't abide by it, yeah. they, they'd have sanctions against yeah. that. And it's really interesting that the global community can band together and, and they can operate with teeth if yeah. they really have to. And wouldn't we love it to see that, that there'd be sanctions against opening up the Northern Territory fracking or, mm. you know, uh, yeah. new coal mines or something? That's all the, the public is agitating about that, but it could be done at the legislative level. It'd be fabulous. Yeah, it'd be really, really powerful. I was also kind of blown away um, just how, which is a huge win, I think, but mixing like uh, the, the female rights and family planning and that sort of thing, how that can be, you get this double win of social but also environmental. Yes, and I think that's how our show, which people might like to listen to our podcasts, it's kind of a history. If you ever want to write a history of the climate movement, you could listen to our archive of podcasts because we've covered that. It's not just wind turbines and solar panels or solar big uh, plants. It's more the social change that needs to happen, the economic change that needs to happen. And this book covers those as well. He's a very uh, entrepreneurial person, this Paul Hawke, and he got a team mm. of fabulous people from all universities and everywhere to to contribute to this. So and farming's another big aspect of it, and he covers that. So we're yeah. advertising this book. What what would be the main reason well, to read it? Well, I'd, I'd say, like, the most interesting thing is that it's a survey uh, of all these climate solutions. Like, you hear about them one, one at a time, and yeah. you don't know really where they stand relative to each other. But here they are, all in one book, standardised and Look, I, I, I got a degree in science and I really struggled to understand a lot of these solutions. But yeah. in this book, they all made total sense to me. So I guess yeah. that's that's my pitch. That's how I'd get, get you to buy it. <laughs> and I've got a degree in history. And to me, it's historically so important. Mm. Like this is like a line in the sand. Here's what to do. Stop moaning about mm. it. Get on with it. Here's mm. what it to do. It like there were some great photos in there as well. <laughs> Beautiful, uh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't got the had a chance book. to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just get the audio book. Oh, yeah. The pictures are great. So listeners, buy this book. Get it in your library. Drawdown by Paul Hawken. And we're going to talk um, in a moment, uh, well, pretty much now, about the economic underpinnings of it. So I'll put my headphones on and we're going to speak to Sue Holmes. Um, welcome, Sue, to the radio show. Uh, hi, Vivian. Look, I'm very grateful that you could talk to us from Sydney. Um, and I know you've read the book and you're going to give talks, I think, in Sydney soon about it. But Drawdown seems to assume that we will phase out fossil fuels and create lots of jobs in renewables and labour-intensive farming. I want to know, you're an economist and you've worked with the Productivity Commission. I think you've had your head around policy for a long time. What was your response to the Drawdown project? Um, I also found it um, really interesting and extremely well written. So it was sort of reassuring to know um, that all these things are happening and there's ones that are also um, just being developed. So I found that that fascinating. Um, I guess my what I also found interesting as an economist, though, was that... Um, there are six crucial assumptions which they list towards the end of the book. And the, and the first three of them, in some ways, um, avoid asking the questions that some economists are. So it says that it just assumes that the infrastructure will be in place at the time needed. 
And um, mostly economists would want to know, well, who's going to pay for it and how's it going to get there? Um, And I might say they made all these assumptions so that they could do the assessment. So I'm not critical of them. I'm just saying as an economist, as more of a policy focus, these are the sort of things that um, come to mind for me. Um, The other one was uh, it assumes that right policies will be in place to make it happen. Yes. and as we know, that's an incredibly big assumption. Oh, yeah. there's, the poli- there's the politics of it and there's the design of the policy. Um, it, it also assumes there'll be no price on carbon, which for me is probably the most effective um, measure we could design. So oh. they're my three. Okay, we're going to talk about the carbon price a bit later. But I, I think yes. listeners will be, many of them will have been through the long, messy history of this in Australia. And the worst thing about the policies is that once you get a good policy, like we had that um, climate action plan, um, it can be ripped up by the next government. So we need things that are more permanent. Yeah. Okay, look, politicians and a lot of the media pit the economy versus the environment. So mm. in this election, we've got had Tony Burke, um, the shadow environment minister, offering $1 billion for climate adaptation for nature, while Bill Shorten announced a $1.4 billion pipeline for fracking ga- fracked gas out of Northern Territory. And Tony mm. Burke knows what's happening. He said Australia, this is quoted from him, he said Australia is the extinction capital of the world. So what do you think of what I would call ecocidal subsidies? Well, it is very interesting. It reminds me of tobacco when, uh, you know, we'd be getting all the advertising and tax to dissuade us to smoke cigarettes while our government at the same time was subsidising tobacco farms. So you get these conflicts in policy. So on one hand, they're saying, well, we'll encourage renewable industries. But on the other hand, we'll also encourage um, fossil fuel industries. And I guess that ends up being the political game politicians play and unfortunately it would be better if they sat down and just said like let's have a a tax on all these fossil fuels and um, not encouraging but um, that's not happening at the moment. Well what what do you think about subsidies? I think when we had the Turnbull government we had the Prime Minister of New Zealand I remember asking you know Australia to cut our fossil fuel subsidies just that and the President of um, was it Kiribati came to Australia? They both begged Turnbull to yeah. cut those subsidies. Yeah, um, study by Market Forces said that um, the government paying twelve billion dollars a year uh, to um, subsidise the fossil fuel industry by um, tax credit schemes, and the biggest one is the fuel tax credit scheme, which pays people to use heavy users to use petrol, subsidise, removes any tax they pay on it. And um, it costs $7 billion a year, that one thing in itself. Um, so, so for me, the market could work really well. And it already um, the clean energy is cheaper than the fossil fuel energy. And we just need to get out of the way of the market and stop propping up um, industries that are industries of the past. Definitely. Uh, well, look, yeah. you've said um, uh, to me that there are plenty of jobs for everyone if we start yeah. focusing on serv- saving the planet. And I know it's possible because Kurt did a brilliant interview uh, last year with a German trade unionist who said they'd compensated 
or retrained all their Ruhr Valley coal workers and no one was left behind and their economy is still thriving. And I wonder if the economy was focused on survival, what items in the drawdown book would you promote? Sue? <clears throat> um, I, guess, I guess I'd go for their top ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, do you think the transition planning is in place? Do policies, uh, do we have sufficiently detailed policies to transition people into those things, you know, that Drawdown promotes? Um, look, uh, Sue, we've just got you back after losing you for a second. Look, can we have it? I have to give you another question now. I think the true measure of success is really only when we see emissions falling. And, yeah. you know, in our nation, our personal footprints even, and in the emissions that we stop exporting. But we did have, from 2012 to 2014, we did see emissions falling, and I think it was mostly because of the carbon tax. How would you, how would a carbon tax nowadays, it's still controversial, I guess, but how would it accelerate the drawdown, for example, in refrigeration or the food industry? Okay, um, well, generally, when you put a price on something and you make it more expensive, um, people start looking for alternatives. So even tobacco, which is a highly addictive substance, uh, a, um, when if every time the government raises the taxes on tobacco, some people give up smoking. So um, just putting raising prices pushes people in the right direction uh, to take account of uh, the emissions, the fossil fuels they're adding to. Uh, refrigeration, though, is a bit different because the carb is there. You need more regulation and more dealing with the end of cycle of the whole, all the fridges and so on. Mm. So it's, it's not quite the same as, as other industries in that respect. Um, but with food, um, a carbon tax would first hit um, agriculture. So farmers would be choosing fewer tractors or choosing uh, less more clean energy options uh, to run their farm. Um, so, I, yeah, those, those two examples aren't, aren't great ones for carbon tax, but mm. all of the energy sector, of course, you could see how that would influence it. Um, and I think the thing about the price, if you put a price on something it, and it affects everybody, it means you don't have to protect, uh, choose particular sectors to bear the whole burden of reducing emissions. And you give incentives to everyone to start to look for options that will um, choose um, lower emissions and people start to decide um, how, how they will travel. They'll suddenly find flights more expensive and walking and trains cheaper. Um, they'll find that um, it's getting too expensive to heat or cool their home. So they will be looking for other options like insulation. So all those things and solar panels. So the price, you know, it affects everyone's decisions. So it affects the individual, it affects the community, it affects the industry and it affects the whole nation. And if the whole globe takes on 
um, a higher tax on carbon emissions. Uh, it changes things. And just to note, the UK uh, says that next year it expects to re- uh, reduce its emissions level back to what it was in 2005. And they've actually gone further than the EU uh, cap-and-trade measure. So they're at an extra tax on top of that. Oh, so that, yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah. So they've got a carbon tax and it's supplementary to the EU carbon tax, is it? Yes, that's right. So they've added extra because there was a collapse in prices uh, a few years ago. So they thought, well, we're not going to wait around for that uh, to fix itself. And they um, added a tax to keep the, the price up. Right. Well, um, a, a few yeah. weeks ago we spoke to Helena Norberg-Hodge and she was very much into the carbon impact of globalised trade and she said yeah. that localisation, just consuming more of what's near at hand, is better because of all these miles attached to importing stuff and food being a big part of it. What do you think yeah. about that? You know, what's the best economic lever to encourage that to happen? Well, the, the cost of fuel is the, the starting point for that, and um, so uh, so as soon as you, as soon as people get the message that it, um, it costs more to bring in overseas food, they'll be more inclined to switch to local products. So so that's just you know it's not a mandate, it's not a prohibition, an absolute thing. It's just saying. Um, this is a negative externality. No one's being accountable for it. We'll make the, consu- the polluter pay for it, yeah. and then everyone's going to take account of it. So it's not an uh, yeah. So I would expect there'd be less of um, merchandise trade, but I guess we need to remember um, that Australia is a net exporter of food. So I think it exports almost as much as oh, yes. um, it consumes locally. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it certainly, so I guess my thing is I don't like those absolutes. I think we benefit from being part of the world. But um, but to take account of the costs that are involved is, is my economist's answer to that. All right. Well, I'd just like to ask you, I know you've had, um, <clears throat> you've, you've been in, well, I don't know if you've, the um, Productivity Commission isn't part of government, is it? It's independent. It's funded by government and it's part of the federal government, but it is independent. Okay. Well, what about, from your experience, you know, a lot of people in the kind of meetings I go to, they they talk about the whole system has to change, you know, not Mm. climate change, but system change. And it seems that the capitalist system that we've got now is on steroids and it seems to have this huge imperative to grow and it's always Mm. palmed off on us, well, jobs, you know, the jobs Mm. will be involved in that growth. But, and I can see why fossil fuel companies are doing all they can to delay the time when their profits will be turned off. But I think people can't see another model. They fear collapse of the biosphere, like we've seen insect populations you know, declining yeah. alarmingly. They fear that less than they fear the collapse of capitalism. So what can you say to show us another model or another way well, forward? Well, you know, I think what, what it is is we, we human beings tend to focus on the, the, the problem that's most near. So for those companies, they're most concerned about how they're making a living. But, and I think what's happened is I don't think we have to give up a market system. I think what we have to do is make sure those producers don't have so much say on the policies being made by government, that we've lost our democracy in that respect, that it isn't a fair representation and we don't have governments now who are 
um, clearly thinking of the overall national interest. They seem to be too swayed by powerful sectional interests. And for me, that's the, that's the issue. Yes. How do we remove their influence and get uh, politicians and public servants going back and giving the best advice? Um, I think that's the issue. That's very good. And it's not just the national interest, but the global survival interest too, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's local, state, national, global. So, um, you know, and um, when people write about carbon price, they say, ideally, we want the same carbon emission price across the globe because that way um, we'll have a rationalisation of industry and the, the worst performers on emissions across the globe will close down first or dramatically change their technologies. Um, and so that's the best way to do it, the most efficient way right. uh, to bring us to a lower emission economy. Okay, well, thank you very much, Sue. Those cool-headed words will carry us through. I didn't really introduce you properly. We've been speaking to Sue Holmes. Could you just tell us who you are? You know, uh, yeah, what, I'm. Um, you've got many I, hats on, but what? <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I, I used to work at the Productivity Commission. Um, more recently, I've done a lot of work with Malaysians on better regulation making and public consultation, and I was. Um, I get, I'm involved with GetUp and also um, uh, Australian Religious Response to Climate Change a little bit. And I'm more, more recently more involved with GetUp. And I've recently formed, a, well, a couple of years now, a group of um, three of us called a group of concerned economists. <laughs> oh, well done. All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us. We'll probably speak again. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. So now, thank you listeners for bearing with those phone problems. We're going to go, we're still talking about Drawdown tonight. It's a book written by Paul Hawken, drawing on the research of a lot of people. And I've got someone with us in the studio, so we'll have no problem with losing him. Um, Lachlan Rule is a researcher with Beyond Zero Emissions, and he works in their office. And so thanks for coming into the radio station, Lachlan. Thank you very much for having me, Vivian. Well, we're going to get very specific about refrigeration in a moment. But before we do that, can you just tell us what you do at BZD, what you're working on at the moment? Absolutely. So I lead a project called Repowering Our Regions, uh, which takes a lot of the amazing work BZD has done over the last 10 or so years, uh, looking at energy and industry and building transition uh, and uh, we apply it to specific locations, so towns like Collie in Western Australia that's really reliant on coal mining, um, places like the Northern Territory that are looking at you know moving into into fracking, uh, towns like the Hunter Valley as well that are really dependent at the moment on coal mining and use. And so we map out alternate pathways forward so that we don't have to keep doing that or yeah. we don't wind up with a resulting economic collapse when those industries close. Well, I can see you will be back in here one day to tell us about each of those places because it's urgent to. that Absolutely. we know... Yeah, how do you do it, transition people? I think people are crying out for it, don't you, really, in the communities? They don't want to be doing those dirty industries if there's an alternative. Well, I think a lot of the conversations I've had, certainly in, in Collie, have been people saying we just need someone to start talking seriously about what it looks like next. And I think that's what – I think you're right. People are really crying out for a, a pathway forward. And people are sort of naturally and reasonably anxious about what economic transition means. And so I think it's about demonstrating a really clear – believable practical pathway forward so they can 
you know, be confident they're still going to be able to pay the bills and pay the mortgage and look after their families, yeah. which is very reasonable. I'm very proud of this radio station for being part of that because we had Erin, who's just been in here a minute ago, she did a program interviewing the people at Port Augusta and we've done many yes, projects on. to. Fabulous. Yeah, wasn't yeah. that fabulous? And so it's an ongoing saga, listeners, as you've listened, if you've listened to this program, Port Augusta it had coal, it went off coal, there were projects to put up a new um, concentrated solar thermal thing, but now they've reneged on that for the moment, but we heard on BZE it's not terminal yet. And as well, I mean, Port Augusta, we shouldn't just focus on that one project because Port Augusta is undergoing a massive yeah. boom in renewable use oh, um, across hub. the whole region. So, I mean, there's still a massive amount of energy development going on in Port Augusta and South Australia more broadly. Yeah. So if you s- support this program, listeners, you'll hear it as the news sort of develops with us. And we're never deterred by bad news. We just go on. So just keep cracking on. That's all you can do. <laughs> Um, look, in, we're going to talk about refrigeration now, listeners. In the book Drawdown, everyone was very surprised when that book was published because their number one drawdown tactic was refrigeration. You thought, what? Well, the reason was that in 2016 there was a meeting in Kigali in Rwanda and officials from more than 170 countries went there and agreed on an amendment to phase chemicals used in every refrigerator, air conditioner and supermarket freezer out by 2028 or something. Like it was extremely amazing that they could agree on something as big as that. And the Drawdown Project says that this will reduce 89 gigatons of carbon emissions. So Lachlan, can you take the story on from there? So a lot of uh, listeners would be aware of the original. So the Kigali... Accord is an amendment to an earlier piece of um, international, an earlier international agreement called the Montreal Protocol, which phased out a class of refrigerant gases people would be aware of called chlorofluorocarbons and hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which were busy burning a hole through our ozone layer. Um, and so, because of the success of the Montreal Protocol, which has been uh, very effective at phasing out those gases in the ozone layer, thankfully has started to repair itself, so we don't have to um, wear SPF 50 every day. And because of the success of that existing accord, the international community felt that that would potentially be the best mechanism to uh, see the phase-in of these next generation of gases. So to replace CFCs and HCFCs, we uh, started using a class of gases called um, HFCs, which had next to no ozone-depleting potential, but were very, very potent uh, global warming agents. So for example, there's a uh, a refrigerant gas called R32, which has a global warming potential of 14,000 times that of CO2. So if you released mm. one tonne of R32, it would be the equivalent of releasing uh, 14,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, obviously, we release smaller amounts of these refrigerant gases, but they're very potent. Mm. And um, they're also growing very rapidly, up to 10% per year, the use of these mm. refrigerant gases. So uh, the Kigali Accord... It was, it was 197 nations wound up signing the Kigali Accord mm. um, and it mapped out the uh, common but differentiated responsibilities for developed and developing nations. Mm. So developed nations like Australia have a responsibility to um, phase out, well, not completely phase out, of course, mm. as well, to reduce the use, uh, the global warming potential of refrigerant gases used to 85, sorry, to 15% mm. of the current total by 2036, and in developing nations, uh, it's a similar target, 85% reduction by 2046. So there's still a long way to go, and as with all of these big international agreements, it was amazing that we got it over the line, but it's now about making sure that actually nations follow through on it, 
and that we are being suitably um, aggressive in tackling this challenge to make yeah. sure that we actually are hitting those targets. Yeah, and as Kurt said at the beginning, like there will be sanctions. So how will that work? Well, very exciting. Well, all the nations signed up to the Kigali Accord agreed to actually uh, enforce, unlike the Paris Agreement, which yeah. is um, at present not enforceable from the international community, the Kigali Accord, uh, building on the success of the Montreal Protocol, is actually is enforceable using international sanctions. But what sort of sanctions? What happens if you you don't know? I don't know either. I can't imagine. I'm, I'm just thinking there must be only a few places where these gases are manufactured and used. Not every country produces refrigerators or air conditioners, do they? I mean, it would be that, that club of countries that do that and it would be a matter of getting them to... So it's even more than a club of countries. It's a club of companies. Mm. Mm. So only, oh, a f- yes. only a few companies produce yeah. these. These gases are patented. Yeah. Um, so huge big chemical manufacturers like DuPont and Honeywell yeah. um, manufacture will have patents on the overwhelming yeah. majority of these gases. Um, so where they are produced, I mean, it's, it's, it's the detail is quite complex because yeah. for some things, like if you own a commercial refrigeration system yeah. and you charge it from a canister, that counts for Australia's total. But if you purchase what they call a pre-charged system, oh, like yes. an air conditioning system yeah. or a vehicle air conditioning system, yeah. that doesn't count for our portion of it. So that oh, counts okay. in the country where it's manufactured. Okay. So there are, you're right, there are some things. So where the gases are manufactured, it doesn't matter, but where products are made, are made yeah. can have an effect on it. But it becomes, this is where the devil is in the detail in a way. Okay, well, I don't want listeners no. to be confused because <laughs> exactly. they're, they're looking at their fridge, fridge <laughs> with horror now. Um, but I think it's really ironic that climate change, <laughs> isn't it ironic that the increasing need to keep ourselves cool and our computers in those huge computer service centres, keeping them cool. I went to a whole conference on that. And they have them all irrigated and air-conditioned and this huge amount of you know, cooling goes on in those computer places. But this is all making global warming worse. What do you think about that? Well, and particularly, I mean, you know, air conditioning is a very well-established thing in Australia. We're quite used to switching yeah. on the split system. But as, you know, nations like China and large populous nations in Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent start to, you know, as their um, living standards improve, people will, the uptake of air conditioning yeah. is, is going through the roof. It's so, a- it, So, you know, there is this... There is, you're right, this really sort of slightly perverse thing where as the world gets richer and hotter, we are, you know, using more and more of these gases that compound that problem. So, yeah, it's, I mean... So they're still manufacturing uh, white goods that have got those gases in them, are they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So things things like um, most uh, domestic refrigerators Mm. have swapped to natural refrigerants like hydrocarbons, like propane, which have a very low global warming potential. But most of the split system air conditioners that you would buy, like a, you know, if you went down to Harvey Norman bought a split system air conditioner, most of them would still have. So could listeners go and, if they wanted to do the right thing, could they now buy something with the the non-climate changing gases in it? Yeah, so most products now you can go and find something uh, with a much lower global warming potential. Yeah. But, you know, this is one of those amazing, this is one of those great areas where knowledge is power. And yeah. so... It's about asking those questions and saying to, if you have a refrigeration technician, saying to them, I want to do the right thing. I want to use natural refrigerants. I want to use low global warming potential refrigerants. What options do I have? And not just necessarily believing the first thing they hear, but actually doing a bit more research 
um, and going, you know, actually shopping around a bit. Okay. Well, I think we'll attach something to our website about this, listeners, because you might be a little bit confused and the shops might want to bamboozle you, but um, we've got to get it right. Look, I like the fact that it's mandatory for the refrigeration industry to phase out the HFCs by, well, what did you now say, 2036 in Australia. Okay. But we're not suddenly going to see the old fridges on the footpath like discarded TVs because the global warming chemicals will escape and I believe that is the most important and dangerous moment in the life of these, um, I'll call them white goods because we know what we're talking about, um, because that the gases could escape just there. So what's going to be done to safely dispose of the refrigerants? It's a massive challenge. So 90% of the losses of, of these chemicals occurs at end of use, end of life. Um, and Australia has existing legislation to um, enforce uh, effective effective disposal, but there's very, very few prosecutions that have ever been done. So the most important thing our listeners can do is when they are disposing of white goods or air conditioners or anything like that, to actually ask the people who are disposing it what they're going to do with it and how they're going to make sure those gases don't escape because there are really easy ways to handle and manage those gases, but often it's cheapest and easiest to just throw them away. So that's Mm. why it's really important that people actually ask that question and make sure that they're goods are being disposed of properly. Maybe councils can have a policy about that too. Well, there are existing, unfortunately there are existing policies that are poorly enforced. Mm. So um, there will be, I think, increasingly government and councils will have to look at increasing the enforcement and fines and and prosecutions for some of those those challenges there. Okay. Well, our time's up, but I was going to ask you what could possibly go wrong, but I think the listeners... so many things. (laughs) The listeners already have picked up through all your answers that a lot of things could go wrong, but let's know that one thing for sure is it's very important to do it and that the refrigeration industry is onto it. And we've got all the tools and the technology and we just yeah. it's about sticking the landing now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank so you, we've Vivian. been talking to Lachlan Rule. We'll hear more from him in, in months' time, I think, because of that work he's doing at Beyond Zero Emissions. Okay. We're going over to Kurt now, who has someone to talk to us about food waste, which is another one of the drawdown big items of um, how to eliminate emissions. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Viv. Um, so I, I think it's strange how different the list of solutions from Drawdown is uh, to the one I had in my head before I'd read it. Uh, one solution that would have never made the one in my head was number three, and this is reducing food wastage. The statistics are staggering. Uh, a third of food does not make it from farm or factory to the fork. Uneaten food generates greenhouse gases at every stage and is responsible for 8% of the world's greenhouse gases, 8%. The solution proposed will reduce 70.53 gigatons of CO2. Joshua Bishop is the head of sustainable food for the, with the WWF. He is a trained economist and works directly with markets as a whole, including beef, forest productions, palm oil, seafood and sugarcane. Joshua has spent six years in Mali, Africa, so understands through direct personal experience the world's most insidious disparity. Countries like ours that throw away vast amounts of food, while countries like Mali don't have enough. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kurt. Good to be here. Great. Um, so I noticed that um, you work with across many industries, like we talked about before. What steps are taken to mitigate food waste? Um, so WWF works right across the food system from trying to reduce the environmental impacts of food production 
through to uh, helping consumers choose more uh, sustainably produced food products. But um, food waste is one of the areas that we work on in particular. Um, and uh, we try to align our work with the uh, Sustainable Development Goal of the United Nations, it's Goal 12.3, I think, which is to have food waste globally uh, on a per capita basis by 2030, which is a very ambitious target. Right. So I notice you work with the palm oil industry. Environmentally, they have a really bad name, um, particularly through land clearing. Um, so what what industries you work with are, are responsive and which ones are not so good? I think within any industry, you can find um, more responsive members, and that includes the palm oil industry. Um, you're right. They've got a, a, a bad uh, reputation um, because of the conversion of tropical rainforest to palm oil plantations, particularly in um, Southeast Asia, but increasingly in Central Africa and in Latin America. Um, having said that, even in that industry, there are more responsible producers who have signed up to uh, very ambitious commitments uh, to reduce uh, deforestation, to um, ensure that their, their workers and surrounding communities are well treated, to protect wildlife habitat, uh, to protect water resources, and so on. And, and that includes commitments around waste and, and waste disposal. So you, you have to look at each industry and say, okay, who's doing a better job, and uh, can I find their products in, in the supermarket? In the case of palm oil, um, there are many uh, retailers and food manufacturers in Australia and around the world who've signed up to something called the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, which runs a, an independent certification system which can um, reassure, give some reassurance that the, the producers are, are trying to limit their adverse impacts, whether that's social or environmental. And is any of that certification, is that visible on, on packaging? Can, can, can our listeners find that? Um, for, for palm oil, it's a little tricky. You, you have to get on the websites of the manufacturers and um, that make the food products you like, or you get on the website of uh, your your grocery store, whether you know that's one of the big ones, Coles and Woolies, or a smaller smaller one like Aldi or Harris Farm. And most of those retailers have made commitments to source um, sustainable certified palm oil. And we we um, rate and rank them on a regular basis. There's something called the Palm Oil Scorecard that WWF publishes uh, every few years. Last one was 2016, in, mm -hmm. in which we, we look at how do the manufacturers and the retailers and the palm oil producers stack up against the, the criteria that we are looking for, as I said, trying to reduce social and environmental impact. So it can be hard to find it um, on the supermarket shelf. Um, very few food manufacturers want to draw attention to, uh, to palm oil or to mm. sugar or to other ingredients like that. They're happy to draw attention to, I guess, what I'd call hero ingredients, like uh, seafood. You can find uh, Marine Stewardship Council certified seafood products uh, throughout Australia and, and the world. You can find farmed seafood products certified by the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, which also looks at um, how to reduce those impacts. So it depends on the product. If it's a hero ingredient uh, like seafood or increasingly beef, yes, you can find it. Mm -hmm. um, for some of these ingredients, it's a little harder. That's interesting you bring up the idea of hero ingredients because it seems like um, 
it's it's a matter of PR that 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 some have attained this kind of this level. So in in I noticed in in 2017 we had the Chasers War on Waste, and I think mm-hmm. that opened up a lot of Australian eyes about how food we consumed is pick according to really superficial characteristics. Um, and and but then you always get trapped in this loop. You get trapped in the loop of that supermarkets say they're providing what the consumer wants. Consumers feel helpless because they can only buy what's on the shelves. Where, for you, do you think does most of the responsibility lie? Um, I, I think the responsibility lies with the, um, the retailers uh, more than with the consumer. I mean, consumers um, don't have a lot of time, don't necessarily have uh, the cash to, to pay more. Um, they're in a hurry, coming back from work, stopping at the shops, as I do and you do probably, mm-hmm. picking up something for dinner. Um, they can't spend uh, an hour in the supermarket, you know, closely inspecting the labels. So we we do have to rely on the manufacturers and especially the retailers to to get it right. And you can rely also on the um, on civil society, on the not for profits and advocacy organisations, um, not just WWF, that try and keep those companies honest. And, and you're right. There's there's a lot of noise out there. There are all kinds of claims and labels, and it can be hard to tell the the, um, the real ones from the from the greenwash. Um, we have a, a set of um, sort of principles or criteria that we use to assess a, a standard and a certification scheme. You know, is it is it independent of the companies that are doing it, or are they self-certifying? Um, do not-for-profits have uh, a role in governing the the standard and and setting the criteria? Um, are the auditors uh, independently accredited by a, um, a reputable accreditation uh, service? So uh, things like that. There, there are better standards and better certifications and less convincing ones. And you can't expect the, um, the average consumer to keep track of all that, but you can come on the, the websites of uh, WWF and many other NGOs mm-hmm. and get uh, information about what are the the reputable standards. Yeah, I, I know for myself I used to pick wine just based on uh, how many um, medals it had, and it blew my mind <laughs> that uh, wines could just give themselves medals. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so the, the, the Chase's War on Waste was really successful, um, and I noticed that as a direct result of that, um, supermarkets started bringing out these the, the, the odd bunch, which is where they get um, less kind of superficially or appealing like you know you had a carrot it looked a bit weird um but rather than chuck it out they put it in you get a good deal on it um and that just seemed that really forged the link between these pr what was on tv like how much a consumer would would be able to be awakened by what exactly the cost was to walking around a, a supermarket and having all these pristine vegetables, um, just how powerful PR campaigns could be. What what PR campaigns are you guys working on at WWF at the moment for food waste? Um, so on food waste, we've got a, a global campaign called Save One Third, and it's not actually WWF branded mm-hmm. but, uh, because we want it to be um, accessible and usable by anybody, really. But you can you can Google save one third dot org, um, and there's lots of content there. It's it's mainly a public awareness raising campaign um, that we're rolling out in many languages in many countries with a focus on on celebrations, things like uh, 
whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving in the United States or mm -hmm. Ramadan in many countries, people often, food is often at the center of celebrations. And so we think this is an opportunity to um, make people more aware when they're planning their celebrations that there are ways to do that, that uh, cut down on, on wasted food. So that's, that's one campaign. Um, in some other countries, uh, especially the United States, but also the Philippines, uh, Germany, the UK, we've been running campaigns that are more focused on the business community, um, mm -hmm. in particular the hospitality industry, hotel chain, big hotel chains, for example, and trying to raise awareness both in the, among the kitchen staff but also the, the front-of-house catering staff, um, looking for opportunities to, to reduce waste. And it starts by just measuring how much waste there is. Mm -hmm. um, and people are usually amazed, just as we all were by um, the War on Waste uh, television series. Most people just, they don't know whether they're at work or um, at home, just how much is wasted. So you start by uh, separating and measuring, and then you, you look at ways to reduce that waste. Uh, and then we did a, a project like that here in uh, Australia with the Hilton Hotel in uh, Sydney. Um, and did did the audit with them um, to try and find out how much food was being wasted, and then once that was clear, what could we do to reduce it? And they've they've stuck with that program, which is really impressive, and it's um, within one year had reduced food waste in the hotel by about fifteen percent. Mm. Doesn't sound like a lot, but you know they're serving something like seven hundred thousand meals a year, so it adds up. That's great. That's great. I, I'm looking at waste, which is obviously kind of the end of the cycle. One of the solutions that's proposed in this in the book drawdown um, looks at the beginning of the cycle and says that one of the most powerful things that people can do is create their own gardens at home, which kind of reforges the connection between land and nature and the food we eat. How much of food wastage is a problem with consumers not remembering where food comes from, just thinking it appears in stores? <laughs> I, I, I think we're all um, more and more disconnected from the food system. I mean, something like, uh, if I remember correctly, 80% of the Australian population is living in, in uh, towns and cities, in urban environments. So yes, we're, we're all a, a bit disconnected from where our food comes from. And growing your own food can be part of reconnecting. I think that's a, a useful thing to do. Um, I try and do a little bit of that, even though I live in a unit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but there's other things that consumers can do. They can um, plan their their meals ahead of time rather than just buying things on a whim when they see them in the supermarket. They can, um, you know, check on the, the use-by or best-before dates on the food that they're buying and make sure that they use things up before they go bad. Um, we can all store uh, leftover food better. Um, some things need to go in the freezer, some things in different parts of the refrigerator. Um, and in the UK, uh, increasingly, food manufacturers and retailers, they give the consumer the information. There's labels on the product that tell you exactly how to store it um, to keep it fresh for longer. Portion size is another simple thing that anybody can do. Um, it's, you know, it's great to be generous, um, and, and we all like to um, make sure that people have enough, but uh, people can have seconds or thirds. You know, they don't. You don't need to pile up your plate or your your family's plates um, with mounds of food that they're not going to eat. 
Um, and then lastly, you know, loving your leftovers, right? Um, I do all the cooking in my household, and uh, I try and make sure that you know, when we do have leftovers, and inevitably we do, um, we make the best use of them in some other form. Yeah, I, I, I think fritters are a good option. You can basically put anything into fritters the next day, and they, <laughs> they work yeah. for breakfast. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested. Obviously, a, a fair portion of food is perishable, but there's another f- significant part that's not. And how much of food wastage in that situation is simply an issue of, of, of logistics in which we – is it possible for us to, to move food from where there's too much to simply where there's, there's not enough, like in Mali where, where, where you were for such an extended period of time? It's, it's a tricky one. Um, you know, when I was living in Mali, and that was a long time ago now, um, there was food aid, and there probably still is, and that aid was often surplus food uh, coming from the United States or from Europe, where it had been purchased um, as part of a government uh, agricultural support program. And that's great, but then uh, it, that food turns up in a place like Mali or other developing countries, and it undercuts the local producers. Uh, it's great for the um, the city dwellers, but it's not good for the agricultural sector in those those countries because they can't compete with the subsidies that yeah. um, rich country farmers get. So I have mixed feelings about that. If you want to help people in poor countries, um, better off providing money at a household level, particularly to female heads of households. They're likely to use it well, um, and that money then goes back into the local economy rather than sending uh, leftovers. Uh, whether it's clothes or food or uh, machinery or what have you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's we'll, we'll be talking about um, sending money for the education of um, females in developing countries. On uh, the other hand, what you can do, of course, is is um, get to know your local food rescue organization and food banks, and there are many of them in Australia, and, and they will make sure that uh, leftover food is, quickly well is uh, you know conserved it's it's handled safely and then it's quickly made available to people in need um you you've got oz harvest in many cities you've got second bite you've got food bank and and many other smaller groups that are doing a fantastic job at uh, repurposing food um it it's important to note that they can usually only accept food from relatively large um organizations from supermarkets from big conference venues or from um you know a company that's hosting a a meeting where there's a lot of leftover sandwiches and biscuits yeah. and so on so not appropriate for household level i think at household level it's really more about planning and conserving and storing and just trying to minimize waste and composting where you can well thank you thank you so much for your time joshua um very very quick where can we uh, find out more about the work that you're doing um, at www.org.au for our, our overall uh, portfolio and for food waste in particular, uh, check out saveonethird.org. Great. Thank you so much, Joshua. Pleasure. Nice Bye. to talk to you. Bye. Okay. Uh, is that... That's, oh, that's very good. That was Joshua Bishop from uh, WWF. Thank you, Kurt, for that. Now, I'm, I'd like Kurt and to turn on his microphone and tell me... A bit. What do you think, in summary, we've learned about drawdown? We've got about 
two minutes, but what do you think you've gathered from that? It's it can be messy with refrigeration, I've understood, but we but it is sort of cut and dried and technical. It's not emotional. Uh, what have you learned? Um, well, I I think when you read about it in the book. Uh, it's interesting for me that there's there's these th- sort of things happening in parallel that, you know, there are concerted people that are working on, on, on food wastage um, and there are people working on refrigeration, but they do have their own, own complexities there. Like, what what do you think about the complexities that we've learned? It's not as cut and dried as it seemed in the book. Oh no, I'm I'm like a climate denialist. I'm a complexity denialist. (laughs) That's why I like the book because it was so simple. And I just feel that industries are technically qualified. They can go and run Mm. with it. You've got your Kigali Agreement. Okay, run with it. Refrigeration industry, go, go for it. Uh, Also the food waste. They know about it now. I'm expecting them to do it. Um, I I don't have to understand it. Yeah. Well, that was the that was the that was the big takeaway for me from today, which was. You always wonder about whether it's the consumer, whether the whether it's the consumer that should think green and should choose the climate responsible solution, which they should, or if the onus ends in with the industry. And I think we're finding out more and more that it's it's industry that's that's by and large responsible for providing solutions yeah. to consumers, and including, as you said, advertising, which creates the desire for stuff in the first place. You mm. wouldn't know you wanted that. Anyway, look, we, we're enough of that, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that, and I hope you, some of you will read that book, Drawdown, because it does give you a good overview of a positive way forward. Um, I'd like to dedicate this show to Polly Higgins. You might not have heard of her. She wrote a book called Ecocide, and she died recently. She was a barrister who devoted her life to creating an international crime called Ecocide. An example near us in West Papua where an international is an international consortium which intends to clear 4,000 square kilometres of magnificent rainforest, which is now sequestering carbon, but to plant palm oil and it's all without the consent of local people that is ecocide both locally and in the global emissions it would create and polly higgins in a beautiful article that george mombio wrote she said before she died this is only a few weeks ago if this is my time to go my legal team will continue undeterred but there are millions who care so much and feel so powerless about the future i would love them to see the power of this one simple law the Earth Protectors Group that she founded is working to make ecocide a crime, whether you are BP, Shell, Equinor in the Great Australian Bight or the Northern Territory Government fracking gas. They would be uh, caught uh, as doing criminal ecocide. So I just wanted to mention that because we should celebrate people who've passed on. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, um, Sue Holmes, um, who's an economist, Lachlan Rule, talking to us from Beyond Zero Emissions about refrigeration, and Joshua Bishop from World Wildlife. No, is it World Wildlife Fund? Yeah. WWF, yeah. that's right. And um, so thank them very much for giving us their, their ideas. And I'd also like to tell you, listeners, if you are at in any way likely to go out tonight, there are two competing events. One is at Monash University. Um, if you'd like to go and be part of the Extinction Rebellion um, action outside Q&A, Q&A is being um, filmed at Monash University tonight, 8pm, so get there. I think it, the show starts at 8.30, so be there at 8pm. Blackwood Hall, 
49 Scenic Drive, Clayton. You might just be living down the street from that and can get there easily. The other one is for people nearer to Carlton uh, because the Beyond Zero Emissions Discussion Group and that's uh, a talk. Kurt, can you tell us the yeah, details? That's uh, Donna Luckman, who's the CEO of uh, Renew, which is an um, alternative technology association. And the theme is raising new home energy standards. Okay, so there's not much time to get there, listeners. It's at Melbourne University, um, Fritz Lowe Theatre. It's in the Chemistry Building, and it's just off Swanson Street. So uh, Beyond Zero Emissions is a very... Um, influential think tank. It's an educational organisation, not really a campaigning organisation, but we, our research underpins a lot of the things that do happen. So please support us by donations and attending these events like that discussion group. I think you would enjoy it. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the team, Kurt and Andy, for turning up. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> and mm-hmm. keeping calm. So thank you, Andy. No matter what the phones do, he keeps calm. And we'll go out on a lovely track from Eco pillar called Newell Highway. Away before.